Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is Tuesday home time with Joan Bartlett until six o'clock this afternoon. Today, Bishop George Browning talks about an article in the Financial Review written by Warren Mundine referring to Israel and Palestine. We'll have the Gene Ethics Network segment, part two of an interview with Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake, Sylvie Lieber's visit to the Middle East participating in the APAN study tour, the future of nuclear in Japan with peace activist Akira Kawasaki, but first, it's Mr Kevin Healy, and this is Week. ...of town which knows what this society needs got together in a big economic summit to make sure this society gets what the big end of town needs, and they knew there was no need having anyone there directly representing lazy, avaricious workers because those short-sighted, ignorant people would introduce class struggle, class warfare to the get-together, whereas the big end of town, which knows what we all need, knows there is no such thing as class warfare, class struggle. We're all in it together, and therefore... The filthy, bloated rich can represent both the filthy, bloated rich and the evil, lazy, avaricious workers whom they so care about. And the most impoverished, like all those homeless littering our streets and distressing the good people going to the tennis, for instance. And it was International Women's Day, and the 90% of bloated men celebrated because they know what's good for women as well. Why? Lots of caring employers have affairs with them. And the major development from the get-together was lots of gas, which, when we think about it, is what we'd expect. See, gas prices are crippling big business which must hurt all of us and the problem is so much of our gas is being exported because there's lots of profit in exporting it and the socialists are locking lots of gas in the ground because of unproven stupid 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 economy destroying environmental grounds grounds locking up the ground yet the solution lies in allowing the big end of town to get its hands on lots more gas so it can provide the domestic market and no one for one second believes the lots more gas would join the flotillas exporting the gas because that would suggest the filthy bloated big end of towners are greedy and dishonest that greed and dishonest obfuscation are dominating the debate so wash your mouth out Kevin how could you think such disparagement of those who care only for all of us one of our great and revered energy giants, RG Helder Consumers, is now investigating building floating terminals to import gas to meet the domestic shortage. So, True Blue Aussie, one of the biggest exporters of gas, liquefied natural in the world, may import gas for its domestic market because market forces demand its more rub your hands together, make a killing, rip off super profits to flog the gas owned by the people elsewhere rather than provided for the people. But I hope that doesn't lead us to think there may be the odd inconsistency, incongruity with the greatest little economic order of them all with the rigid discipline of market forces and competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice. 
on caring for the world despite the, again, rigid consistency and logic of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, sadly, true love never runs smooth. Just a few months after Donald's love affair with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, indeed he so praised Assange for exposing the email scandals surrounding Hillary, we thought he may exonerate, pardon him and declare the US of no longer wants to jab him with a lethal needle after keeping him on death row for 20 or so years. But now, sadly, WikiLeaks has jilted poor Donald, releasing CIA files showing they spy on just everyone. Who would have thought? Everyone would, of course, include Donald himself, but let's not go there. We know it's to protect liberty, freedom and democracy, particularly the most important freedom of all, the freedom of capital. And now, rather than exoneration, forgiveness, pardon, indeed some civil medal for extreme bravery, Donald is demanding criminal proceedings. Prepare the needle. How cruel of Julian to treat Donald this way. Although perhaps it's for the best, because Donald is opposed to same-sex marriage in principle, and thus his conscience can be assuaged. And anyway, who'd believe the CIA would ever do anything illegal like invade privacy or, as some long-haired commie lots suggest, assassinate those the US of doesn't like? Why, the CIA would know that would be illegal. Donald himself was a victim of spying, former big supremo Barack for change, 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 ordering these wiretaps and, OK, Donald can't produce any proof, but what's proof got to do with the truth, like those calamitous terrorist attacks in Sweden because it, ex because it accepts evil refugees, which Sweden is still trying to track down because it knows it must be true because Donald said so and Barack Four accepted refugees. So surely there's a clue there. And, and expecting Donald to prove what he says could expose his sources and threaten the security of the free world. And it's unfair to allege the source is his mind because that would assume there's something there to initiate the source and the US of has really important security matters on its plate like evil, evil, evil North Korea which has fired a few skyrockets into the ocean when all the responsible countries like the US of which have nuclear weapons, nuclear missiles have decreed North Korea can't have any of the weapons they've got and North Korea, home of the great and beloved leader and his great and beloved brilliant son and great and beloved brilliant grandson. What a great and beloved brilliant family. Raises the miserable excuse that the US of and South Korea are conducting war games on its borders, including nuclear armed missiles. And China has raised the odd objection to the US of missiles on its borders, suggesting they're a threat to its security. And the US of says this shows how aggressive is China and shows why it must have a war machine on China's doorstep and we know so peace-loving an empire, so peace-loving a hegemonic power like the US of would have no objection to China holding war games, firing and stationing permanently a few nuclear missiles off New York. Evil China is objecting to 
U.S. obtrained killers, our brave young men and women in uniform, holding a few innocent exercises on the evil Chinese border, Donald was flabbergasted. I will crush evil Chinese aggression, evil people, bad dudes. On such matters, one of Donald's giant mind spin doctors asked about Donald describing Barack Four as a bad guy, evil guy, evil dude. We're, dis we're disparaging the President of the United States by criticising Donald, so at least we know bad guy, evil guy, evil dude is not disparaging. And she also said the evil guys, the CIA, I think, so we'd probably have to agree, evil guys had turned Donald's microwave oven into a state-of-the-art spy network. So in this case, thanks Julian, thanks WikiLeaks for giving them a line. And the proof will be in the pudding. Well, in what Donald ate, if the CIA releases details of what leftovers Donald reheated. On Giant Minds, back here we have to take the editorial scalpel to that one notion person, that appalling Hoonsun, or she'd completely dominate this segment, from failing to inoculate herself against medical nonsense to telling a reporter on Monday, last week that was, she totally supported the penalty rate cuts for the lowest of low-paid workers, something about fish and chips on Sunday, then next day in Western True Blue Aussie telling a reporter she didn't support the cuts, that we needed a debate on the issue, where her contribution would be invaluable. And by week's end, she was rethinking the inoculation bit after the proverbial hit the fan. She was covered in it. The problem of populists, as they now coin them, saying something not so popular, leaving her supporters feeling giddy, keeping up with what the hell is our policy today, or even this morning, or this afternoon, or this half hour. But thank goodness she never wavered on her basic one-notion policy. No halal! I raise this because we mentioned last week that appalling had screeched the caring business class party preference deal, which proved so glittering a success, was not a deal. It was to shore up our support. And as we said, it sure pissed it off. But then, since the election, Western Troubler was the electing a government intent on destroying capitalism, she has blamed the deal, which she said wasn't a deal, and it was the caring business class party's fault that people didn't vote for no halal, and the new socialist government had lied and was dishonest for not giving her its preferences. But then we have to admit, logic is not one of that appalling long suits. Still, she also said getting no votes was a great result, showing that at least she's easily pleased. Finally, top of the popularity poll this week. A sea change means plenty of change, and plenty of the folding stuff as well, for that matter. <laughs> Beachside resident and former deputy speaker Don No Dollar returned, laughed as he scampered to the cross benches. And speaking of stuff, they can all get stuffed. Yes, yes, why the cross bench, Don? Well, it was a choice of the Socialist Party or a hundred grand. Hmm, tough choice? Joking, a no-brainer. But, but, but what about your lifelong commitment to the workers, to, to socialism? I am as committed to the workers and socialism as all of, as any of, my former colleagues in the Socialist Party. And for once, listener, we'd have to agree with a poly. Good afternoon.
And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. It's not often that the Australian Financial Review gets a mention on this program, but an opinion piece by Warren Mundine on the editorial and opinion page of on Tuesday the 7th of March cannot go unchallenged. One of the many affronted by the article, both Palestinians and non-Palestinians, was the former Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn, George Browning, who since 2013 has been the President of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. George, can you first talk about the author, Warren Mundine? Warren Mundine is a very high-profile and highly respected Aboriginal leader who speaks quite frequently. He's often on the drum in, on the ABC. He's recognised as one of the leading uh, Indigenous spokespersons in Australia today. Well, many people listening to this program wouldn't be readers of the Financial Review, but I'd imagine there are many aspects to this article by Mundane that you would challenge. So how would you like to go about it? The headline given to the article is, is a connection between the status of Australian Indigenous people, the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander people, with the Jewish peoples, meaning that the relationship that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have with the continent Australia is equal to the relationship which Jews have to um, Palestine-Israel. I challenge that because while there are some Jews who have historic links uh, uh, with the land of Palestine, the reality is that the polls show from the 19th and 20th century that the majority of people with connections to the land then were not Jews. They were actually, uh, what well, they were Arabs, but they were descendants of tribal people who've lived there for millennia, really, probably descendants of Philistines and Phoenicians and other peoples. So actually to write an article that excludes those people from their indigenous rights, they've never, li- never lived anywhere else, is both untruthful and, and quite dangerous in terms of modern political life. And the difference between the the issue of a two-state solution and a one-state solution? Well, uh, he doesn't actually deal with that issue in his article. It's a good question because, as everybody knows, your listeners will know, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, came to Australia recently and made it clear on his visit that he would neither accept a two-state solution, as the West understands a two-state solution, nor would he accept a one-state solution, so that he would not accept uh, a state of Palestine, which had its own autonomy and was seen equally to the state of Israel. Uh, nor would he accept a one-state solution in which all that land was one country, in which everybody had equal rights. He made it clear that he did not want to, I think his words were, absorb several million Arabs into the state of Israel. Uh, That presents, in my view, a very major problem to the international community because in Australia, as in most Western countries, there is a firm bipartisan commitment to a two-state solution. And if that's clear that the Israeli Prime Minister is not going to support it or allow it or negotiate to it, then where does that leave Australian politics or Western politics generally? Very critical of the likes of Hawke, Rudd and Evans. Yes, he is in his article, Warren Mundine, is, is critical of them. People need to understand historically that all three of those people were and remain strong supporters of Israel. To be a supporter of Palestine 
including my own network, does not mean not being supporting of Israel. Um, I and the members of my network are supporters of Israel and its right to exist, but its right to exist within uh, in the context of international law and in the context of boundaries that are acceptable to the international community. No nation has the right, as in Russia today with, with Ukraine or whatever, to just arbitrarily extend its boundaries. It uh, doesn't have that right, and nor does Israel have that right to arbitrarily extend its boundaries into territory which the international community sees by right as belonging to the Palestinians. He also argues that Arab leaders refused recognition of Israel. Yes, that's true. And that's where I, I don't know whether he was purposely misleading or not, but it is misleading because since the early 2000s, Israel has demanded not simply that it be recognized, um, that it have the right to exist, but that it be recognized as a Jewish state. What Netanyahu has said is that France is for the French and uh, England is for the English, etc., and Israel is for the Jews. Well, if he's to follow that line, then he must follow it as it is expressed in France and England. That is to say that all citizens of, in France, no matter their origin or their ethnicity, have equal rights in France, and they have the same paperwork, they have the same international status, they have the same political, religious, economic rights as in England. But in Israel, that isn't the case. Um, Arabs who live currently in the uh, state of Israel, who are born in the state of Israel, who are uh, Israeli citizens, they have at least 40 provisions which actually restrict their rights in terms of property and movement and so on. There's no such thing as an Israeli passport, by the way. There is a passport which belongs to those who are Jews, but there is other paperwork, which is not a passport, which um, is provided for non-Jews. So if he wants to be recognized as a state in the way that the West understands a state, then he has to provide equal equal rights to all citizens. But surely there's the issue of what is Israel? What are the boundaries? The normally accepted definition of the boundaries of Israel are what are called the 1967 boundaries. That is to say, uh, a state which occupies something like 78%, 78% of the original Palestine and provides Palestine with 22% of the original Palestine, which in the Oslo Accords, the Arab authorities have agreed to. But what's happening is that Israel is now building the settlements in this 22%. So the very small part, which is in the international community's mind, set aside for Palestine, that is being eroded day by day. And in the peace talks, there has been some acknowledgement there would be land swaps so that a couple of the settlements that are closest to Israeli borders perhaps would be allowed to be incorporated into Israel uh, and in compensation other land would be then handed back over to the Palestinians. So that's really um, how the international community understands the state of Israel within the 1967 borders. It includes, by the way, that East Jerusalem is uh, the capital of Palestine. He's also been criticised by others for criticising Palestinians who who demonstrate against the, their own occupation. Yes. In the article, rightly or wrongly, he, he aligns uh, Aboriginal people with the Jewish people. Now, 
if he's going to do that, then he must recognize that uh, in doing so, he is linking us back, if you like, to the, the age of the white settlement in Australia, when um, white settlers, mainly English, Irish, etc., came to Australia, and they willy-nilly just it totally ignored the rights of the Aboriginal people, and Aboriginal people were massacred. Um, Aboriginal people lost their land. They had no rights until the Mabo legislation in the 1990s. That is now exactly what is happening to the Palestinian people. They're losing their land. They're losing... So that if if there is a connection between uh, Australian Aboriginal people and uh, what's happening in Palestine, it is the reverse of what Warren Mundine suggests in his article. It is that the Palestinians are being um, treated in the way that Aboriginal people were treated in the in the um, 19th and probably the 20th century. I know I had the feeling a little while ago that maybe Mundine didn't actually write this article. Someone else wrote it. I myself have come to that conclusion because I just can't imagine that he would have written what he's purported to have written because it has so many mistakes in it. It makes linkages that are clearly not ones that knowingly he would want to make because I know he is a a man who stands up for the justice of his own people, etc. I sometimes am asked to put my name to articles that other people have written, and sometimes I agree and other times I disagree. So it's not uncommon for that request to be made, and uh, perhaps on this occasion he'll have to say that he, that he did write it himself. But um, until he does, I think it's fair for people to conclude that the article appears to be a propaganda from um, people who support a particularly aggressive right-wing Israeli narrative. Have you seen much criticism of this article? Oh, I have, yes. There have been many, many letters to the editor in the Finn Review. I've written my own blog about it. Yes, there have been from across the board. People are, are just uh, can't believe that he wrote it uh, any more than I, I, I... Maybe maybe he did write it, but I, it, I find it... If he did write it, what was the motive? What was intended here? I just don't understand. But he hasn't replied to that criticism. No, no not, to, not to my knowledge, no. OK, George, thanks for that. You're very welcome. Is there anything else that we could no, have put... No, nice to talk to you. All right. Um, but uh, I'm not wishing to take issue with Warren Mundine himself. Mm. Uh, I'm, I just take issue with this article. Uh, I respect him as, as, a, as an Indigenous leader of some considerable standing and uh, over the years if anybody wants to look at my record I, I myself have been an outspoken supporter of justice for the Aboriginal people probably for the last 40 years so I don't think that uh, people can uh, put me into a pigeonhole of being du- having a double standard here. And thanks to Bishop George Browning who's a former Anglican Bishop of Canberra Goulburn and the present President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And we continue now with the interview with the Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. We left Neil last week talking about the bottle deposit legislation 
in South Australia. Certainly the littering rates in South Australia are much reduced than they are in Victoria, but there's all sorts of statistics floating around from different places and people are you know, collecting bits and pieces of statistics. And so that's a whole other area really where community organisations or campaign organisations really need to work together to make sure they are using the same methods or if they're not using the same methods at least they're talking the same language and using the same terms to quantify the issues because if people are getting different messages from different organisations the average punter out there who's not particularly fussed about whatever's going on because they're not connected they're going to say oh what are they on about, you know, <laughs> and just not bother to even uh, mention it to their politicians or consider it when it comes to them to their turn to vote. You mentioned Northern Territory there. I thought a few years ago that they made an effort to bring it in, but Coca-Cola stymied it. Is that right? Uh, it seems that um, Coca-Cola have been resisting, yeah. So there, there are large lobby groups that need to be targeted, and, and I think it's fair to say that they hold sway in um, government circles because they do get to have different meetings with with people and to discuss these things, whereas campaign groups uh, have to struggle to, to be able to tee up at such a meeting you know, and, and put their case. So industry and the economy and the need to keep that ticking over and looking healthy is a big factor for in front of uh, government minds. So uh, that's something, that, again, that really makes it imperative for any campaign groups to get their act together, do their homework and make sure they're actually adding value to each other's work rather than just clamouring for, for attention so that the best effect is achieved in, when it comes to communicating with politicians. The science of collecting data is something that um, certainly the Port Phillip Baykeeper's been working on improving over the last three years in particular so that the value that's from the data collected is actually going to be a best effect and it's not going to undermine other people's campaigns and will only add value to it. And of course when you're talking about either plastic bags or plastic bottles or glass bottles, that's all part of marine waste. Yeah, practically a major sort of, particularly um, food and beverage items, whether it be confectionery wrappers or, you know, takeaway containers, coffee cups, etc. Sauce, sachets, you know, whether it's sushi sauce or tomato sauce, straws in particular, and uh, all of those kind of things are really a big component, I suppose, in uh, the, the waste we're finding around Port Phillip Bay. Polystyrene as well. So uh, you're documenting all this waste that washes up are you? Or there are a number of, of groups who are documenting it. I've been working on developing a survey method that can be achieved in a relatively short space of time so it's not like a whole beach clean up it's just um, collecting and auditing what's in nine little blocks one square meter blocks on a beach provides a representative sample of the beach. In doing that the main purpose is so that it can be done more regularly and systematically and therefore give a long-term trend, you know, over a couple of years if, if, if that survey method could be implemented in exactly the same way uh, once a month, then that'll give us an opportunity to see which items are actually increasing in the environment or decreasing and put a focus on going to, uh, to government and saying, look, you know, this particular type of waste is, is just increasing uh, exponentially or others have been reducing, you know, and it may be because 
there's been particular measures that have been put in place either by industry or local government or whatever to actually reduce them so we can see whether particular strategies are working or not. If we don't do things in a, in a systematic way, though, we're not going to have a clear case to make. But I can't do it. What I'm actually wanting is, is to find trained teams of volunteers in maybe eight locations around the bay who'd be prepared to have their little uh, survey area and go back to there at least once a month and, and do the process so that we can actually get a picture of what's happening right around the bay and we'll have a good data set. We need a cohesive community campaign which actually involves a number of different sites strategically located in relation particularly to major waterways or drains so that we can see what's coming and where it's likely coming from. The other thing that I've done, though, too, in more recent times is adapted the data sheet so that it actually does use the same terms as the Tangaroa Blue data sheet, which is a national one on the uh, Australian Marine Debris Initiative. So the information we're collecting can add value to their database. I've created new data sheets, too, so using the same terms, which can actually audit streets because that's where the stuff comes from. Most stuff on the beach starts from the street somewhere possibly kilometres away from, from the bay or even the river. Uh, so we need to actually be able to get local communities uh, tracking what's, what's coming from their location. The data sheet has also been adapted to do audits on riverbanks too, so we can track it all the way from the source then into the river or the creeks and then, then to, the, to the bay. Who are you approaching to take this up? The scouting group is a possible movement. You know, there's, there's massive numbers of people in scouts that uh, have an interest in doing good community work. Also, though, I think people who are perhaps retirees or uh, who are looking for something that's interesting to get involved in and they've actually got some grandkids and therefore have some sort of concern for the future might be interested in taking it up as well, you know. So it depends on, like, a number of people who take their daily walk on a beach. It would be ideal if a couple of them were to actually take up a particular beach to, to, to monitor. It just adds an extra sort of layer of activity that they can factor into their, their walk. A bit like in the country where you're going along a, a major or not so major road and you see a section saying that, the certain people in this town are cleaning up this area. This is our patch. Yeah, that's right. And it's fantastic that um, there are more people actually doing that sort of thing. It'll be even better when they all talk to each other and all know what each other are doing. So that, uh, you know, if people are doing, for example, cigarette butt surveys as part of a, a strategy to work out initiatives to reduce butt littering, they'll know or can let somebody know that, oh, would you mind not picking up those butts on, on your regular day because I'm actually going to be doing a survey in the following week and if you take them, well, then it'll skew the data. And you know, So it's, fant- it's a fantastic problem to have that there are more and more people getting actively involved in this sort of thing. Looking at the bay each day, as you probably do, what's the health look like to you? There's a lot of life in the bay, but uh, it's constantly changing and um, it's got some worrying signs, and particularly with regard to climate change. So actually, if you look at the Port Phillip Baykeeper site, I did a, a post on um, violet snails that had turned up at uh, Queenscliff or Point Lonsdale, I think it was, a beach down there, one of the uh, women who came along to uh, the shell survey I did at, at Point Lonsdale had took some 
photos of these snails, which have only been recorded a couple of times in Victoria. And they, they generally come from, um, they float. They create these bubbles and uh, keep themselves floating. So they, they eat blue-bottled jellyfish. That made me look into, well, what's this, what's going on? You know, how come this species, which is generally from the, the tropical waters, um, has been recorded here? And uh, I found that uh, the Bureau of Meteorology had done a report on sea surface temperatures from May to September of last year. And from the area from Broome clockwise around the coast to the South Australian border, Victoria-South Australian border, the temperatures had either been higher than ever recorded before or much higher than average. So there's quite a significant water temperature change happening in the bay. And interestingly, the spider crabs that normally um, come into Blair Gary in, uh, say, April each year, had arrived in February this year, you know. So there's changes that are afoot that um, we're really hard to predict just what the implications of that are going to be. And the other, the heavy rains too, though, have caused a couple of occasions when, well, there's one around about the New Year's Day or the day after when every beach in the in the bay was um, declared unsafe for swimming because of the torrential rainfall, which had actually washed a lot of faecal contamination into the bay. Much of that could be dog poo or possum poo or whatever, birds, etc., just from the catchments, but there's also the likelihood of the sewer system being overloaded and uh, actually spilling out, uh, overflowing into, into the waterways. So we've got some serious issues ahead with climate change induced change uh, which are going to require first of all understanding and quantifying the issues and and then putting investment of dollars into changing the infrastructure improving the infrastructure to uh, if we're going to keep a healthy bay so there's big plans though and a lot of discussion the state government has just concluded um, consultations on while receiving submissions for a Port Phillip Bay environment plan that will be play out I suppose and released I guess probably sometime towards the middle of this year and and that'll address quite a number of those issues just how successfully it addresses it well time will tell but a big part of it is just having a community actually engaged and connected on the issue. And that's where you come in and where the Eco Centre comes in and people can contact you. Yeah that's right and uh, I mean I mean, there's probably other people they can contact too, and we don't, we don't try and do everything. It's, it's about finding who's interested and, and who's got some uh, talents but, and ideas and uh, try and uh, make add value to what everyone's doing. But you can direct people to other... Yeah, put people in touch with each other in their local patch. I think that's important that people actually do stuff where they live and get to know what's going on where they live because they're more likely to... Uh, get practically engaged in a topic if it's actually directly relates to their, their own lifestyle. And what's the first move for people? They can uh, just email me at baykeeper at ecocentre.com or look at the Port Phillip Baykeeper website, which is I always make stuff an easy read. Don't believe in overloading people. Usually try and get an interesting photo uh, and uh, just have maybe 150 words or something about what the issue is and or the topic. And um, Yeah, just sort of get people um, thinking about getting involved and, and um, being positive. Well, it's all part of our culture, isn't it, today? 
Well, it's a massive thing, you know, mm. like um, it, there's, there's no question that the Port Phillip Bay is really quite unique in its, the way that it's configured. If you look at a, a map of Australia, there's two-thirds of the Victorian population live around catch, in catchments around Port Phillip Bay, you know, so it is, it's important not just from a social perspective but also uh, economically in, in terms of Victoria's economy. It, it generates a lot of international interest from tourism. Our beaches have been recognised as being, uh, you know, a draw card for international visitors. So that's something we should be proud of and, and actually look after it and not just take it for granted. And that's our baykeeper, Neil Blake. And do have a look at his webpage, the baykeeper of Port Phillip Bay. Last month, the Melbourne City Council voted on bylaws to restrict rough sleeping in the CBD. Some say they criminalise homelessness. The Lord Mayor says they protect public amenity. This Friday, we invite you to a town hall-style public forum to discuss the issue, presented by the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University. Join us from 6 to 8 at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub to hear from a panel of advocates, researchers and public figures and have your say on homelessness in Melbourne CBD. And it's time for our monthly talk with Bob Phelps from the Genethics Network. And Bob, let's start off with a visitor from England who's going to be in Melbourne next week and he's also going to Canberra and Sydney. Yes, Dr. Michael Antonio, who heads up the Gene Expression and Therapy Group at uh, King's College in London School of Life Sciences, is going to be in Australia. It's great to have him here because uh, he's warning about the new genetic engineering techniques that are coming on the scene now, which our federal government is talking about not regulating. We, of course, have um, put in our submission to say that uh, everything should be regulated, but the industry and lots of the science bods are on the other side saying, no, nothing needs to be regulated. It's going to be safe as houses, going to be a wonderful bonanza, of course. We'll be able to just genetically engineer everything without any trouble. What's been his recent research? A group of researchers that Michael leads have been working on the glyphosate-based herbicides that are marketed as Roundup, and uh, their recent findings are very worrying because... uh, they've found that at concentrations far below those that the regulators here in Australia approve, that's the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, that uh, there's liver dysfunction, particularly fatty liver disease, uh, and it appears to result from chronic ultra-low dose exposure to the Roundup herbicide. This is of extreme concern because, of course, that's the most used agricultural chemical in the world and uh, it's used in city streets, on parks, kids' playgrounds and so on to control any green living thing. A weed, a plant will be killed by, uh, by Roundup and it appears that uh, our health is being compromised as well. And there are actions here in Australia, I know you've been talking about it for a long time, to try and encourage councils to stop spraying this poison around the the streets? Well, yes, the World Health Organisation in 2015 uh, concluded that uh, the active ingredient in Roundup, which is called glyphosate, is a probable human carcinogen. And as a result, uh, regulators have been looking at 
this again. In fact, though, our pesticides authority has pretty much said we dismiss any problem of carcinogenicity from glyphosate. But local councils have been stepping in. For instance, the Bass Coast Shire Council in South Gippsland, where one of our colleagues lives at her urging, are now uh, running a trial to see if another system will work. It's called BioWeed, based on pine oil, and we're hopeful that it will be successful. And interestingly, in Melbourne itself, the Borondara Council, whom I talked to about, gosh, five years ago now, it must be at least, when I was living over there, uh, is also conducting a trial using the weed steamer to see whether the management of roadside weeds and in parks and so on can be managed successfully and economically. So those one-year trials, if they're a success, hopefully we'll see those councils at least move away from using Roundup and uh, we're hopeful that that will start the process of the 700 councils around Australia uh, ultimately phasing it out because the the evidence is coming in. We just need a very, very thorough review. Uh, We have prevailed on the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority who have been very dismissive of the risk of carcinogenicity from Roundup to say now that they will also look at the other evidence of toxicity because there is considerable evidence that the formulations that are Roundup, which don't, of course, only include glyphosate but a whole raft of other chemicals as well, can affect fetuses, the human genome, and uh, make us generally sick in a whole lot of other ways as well. How does the steam weeder work? Well, uh, it's a tank which produces high-temperature steam and it's simply sprayed on any plant so that uh, it pretty effectively burns the plant without a flame. There are flame guns as well which use actual flames which are gas generated but the weed steamer is a instrument mounted on a ute or something of that nature which can go along and uh, spread very high temperature uh, steam onto, onto plants and thereby destroy them. Well, the Weed Steamer Company has got it on trial all over the place, um, including, as I've mentioned, in Borondara City around Kew and Hawthorne in Melbourne. It's, at the moment, for fairly small-scale management, like along footpaths in parks and so on, but even eventually maybe something like that will be able to be used on farms, and scaling it up to that extent would be a good idea. Weeds are the most expensive things for farmers to manage and now we've got other new technologies coming online like the the Harrington weed destructor is an idea that um, Harrington has been working on for gosh the last 15 or 20 years has finally been commercialized. Who's Harrington? Well he's a um, an inventor in Western Australia who's had this idea that you could use a grinder which is used in the mining industry to grind up minerals that you could use it by catching the weed, the seeds from weeds while you're harvesting your crop. You could actually grind them up and so you would reduce the weed burden in the subsequent seasons. That's now commercial. It's still very expensive, but I guess the price will come down and more and more farmers are now starting to hook the Harrington weed destructor up to the back of their uh, harvesters in order to uh, catch those weed seeds and gradually reduce the amount of plants competing with their crops on the farm. Are we seeing more local areas in the world, local governments, councils, actually stopping the use of herbicide Roundup? 
Well, yes, several countries are doing that now, particularly in Europe. And uh, these countries, uh, for instance, France, has said that Roundup won't be available in garden stores and nurseries for home use. They're still allowing for the time being uh, those um, industries like uh, agriculture to use it, but hopefully that will gradually um, be phased as well. And what labels have they got on them? Well, hopefully better than we have because uh, the uh, labelling here in Australia is really abysmal. There are no proper warnings about the potential hazards of... uh, this chemical on the label that you can buy in uh, really any hardware store and in ca- some cases in supermarkets. I think that we need to really up the, the labelling of these things so that you can be clear that uh, they're not to be treated lightly. You know, the myth that um, glyphosate is safer than salt and uh, even in some cases that you can drink it uh, without harming yourself are absolutely wrong, dangerous. It's a a sentiment that was put out there as public relations by the Monsanto company decades ago and is sort of in the public consciousness that this stuff is uh, so safe to use that you don't need, really need any special uh, clothing or breathing apparatus or any other protection. And it's quite wrong because uh, the evidence, which has been around for a long time but is now coming in, to the public domain where people can actually see what the problems are is warning people that this stuff is toxic and of course it's a bit like the tobacco monsanto did a great job of bearing the evidence from decades ago when it was first registered spent a lot on public relations ever since to make sure that the people who would raise the issues of the hazards of glyphosate and the roundup formulations uh, were kept quiet and discredited you just imagine the, the money that they've made from sales of this stuff worldwide. Oh, it's huge. It's been a, a cash cow for Monsanto. It continues to be, despite the fact that the patent ended around the year 2000. The biggest rival to them were uh, cheap generic producers in China, and they did a deal with them to uh, get spin-offs. So that they've continued to reap the benefits of uh, having that original patent on the formulations. And China was the the country, wasn't it, decades ago where everything was organic and a lot healthier people? Well, initially, and uh, the organic industry, of course, is expanding hugely in China again. That's good. uh, As a result of several major food scandals over the last decade, uh, Chinese shoppers are now very, very risk-averse about what's been done to their food. The Chinese are uh, tightening up their regulations and uh, we now see that Chem China, which has uh, bought Syngenta recently, is going to be one of the big three in the seed and agrochemical business worldwide and uh, it's got to lift its game if it wants to uh, sell its agricultural chemicals into uh, overseas markets. Well, talking about lifting a game, we've got the new government in Western Australia a Labor government after many years of a Liberal Country Party government. What are your hopes there? Yes, well, a new broom is in after eight and a half years of the Barnett government. And, uh, well, as far as genetically manipulated crops and foods are concerned, we're hoping for a positive result. We do have the Labor Party before the election saying that it would introduce uh, farmer protection laws, which would create a fund to automatically compensate farmers Steve Marsh was the organic grower who was decertified and was claiming uh, compensation through the courts unsuccessfully uh, because his neighbour's GM canola blew over his fence. 
and now we're hoping that the government may set up a fund so that a dollar a kilo would be levied on all sales of genetically manipulated crop seed and that would go into a fund which would automatically compensate people like Steve Marsh uh, without them having to go to court and be engaged in very, very long court battles which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, often send them broke. Is there also an issue with other herbicides apart from GM contaminating neighbouring farms? Is that, does that happen? It is a problem, yes. It's, it's happened uh, just this last season in cotton in New South Wales when uh, a lot of the crop was um, adversely affected by spray drift from crop dusting planes. Do people have recourse to that? Well, they would, but again, there are no funds to do it. You know, there's this myth around that uh, farmers can settle their differences or claim for their uh, losses by having a talk over the fence and having a beer with their neighbour. But, of course, spray drift like that that occurred in New South Wales can go kilometres or tens of kilometres. So identifying the culprit is often hard. The cotton industry is trying to do something about it with a dinky little map online which shows where the cotton is being grown and encouraging other people to respect that. But we've seen, particularly in WA, that the, uh, the rules which were put up on the website of the West Australian Department of Agriculture were simply ignored and they were guidelines which uh, counselled the GM crop growers to tell their neighbours when they were going to plant it and not do it close to other people's organic crops, etc. But, of course, it hasn't worked because uh, the cowboys out there who want to grow GM just keep quiet about it, don't tell the neighbours, and uh, stuff comes over the fence. Hopefully the new West Australian Labor government will fix that with a law that uh, sets up a fund uh, which will be available for automatic compensation if people sustain economic loss or harm from GM going rampant in the environment. The government has, uh, prior to the election, also said that it's going to be looking for better GM food labelling, so uh, that pleases the shoppers because, of course, nothing is properly labelled at the moment, and also that they would maintain the power to have a moratorium on any new GM crops that were proposed for release in the state uh, on marketing grounds. If they thought that, say, GM wheat, for example, was going to affect the wheat market, as it almost certainly would, then the power would rest with the state government to say no. Unfortunately, the national arrangements which um, allow that to happen have a sunset clause on them of October this year. So we've got another battle on our hands to try to make all of the governments come to the party again on renewing that policy principle, which is to say that uh, state governments have a reserve power to say no to GM crops if they want to on, for marketing reasons, uh, even if the federal government approves them. So that's been in place for the last, since 2003, but as I've said, it's going to end uh, in October this year. And uh, that's a, timing's a little bit unfortunate from our point of view because, of course, South Australia, Tasmania and the ACT are still GM-free and uh, they may have their powers taken away from them, as will WA, uh, if that particular regulation falls over. Just explain what the CSIRO licensing application has got to do with GM. Well, they're um, uh, looking for field trials of uh, GM wheat 
they're proposing uh, to assess the plant's performance starting later this year. Uh, it'll go on for several years, this trial, but the ultimate objective, of course, is to commercialise genetically manipulated wheat. And already the majority of farmers recognise that uh, GM and the wheat supply would not be acceptable, would affect particularly export markets because uh, we've seen in Asia, for instance, that people there making pasta, bakers and so on, have said overwhelmingly and loudly, uh, if you try to sell us GM wheat, we simply won't buy it. The Australian industry would be shooting itself in the foot if it tries to commercialise GM wheat varieties. But meanwhile, we've got this public research and development money which is a scarce thing these days with governments shrinking uh, research budgets. Uh, the CSIRO and others are out there uh, spending these scarce resources on a thing that uh, we hope would never be commercialised, and I don't think that farmers would take it up either. Wheat is just not very suited to our climate and particularly our changing climate. It may be time for Australia to be rethinking its um, approach because uh, over the last 25 years, wheat productivity has actually been flatlining. A recent um, study, again by CSIRO, of, of wheat productivity from 1990 to 2015 showed that uh, the yield has been static and that it's due to climate change. So the long-term prospects for wheat in Australia are not good, and we ought to be looking around for different crops that are more suited to the climate here to be grown by farmers. And also the areas of Australia, I'm thinking about South Australia and maybe Northern Victoria, Northwest Victoria, where they planted these miles and miles and miles of wheat and on very, very marginal land, which maybe should have left, been left alone. Yes, of course, and uh, chopping down forests and clearing vegetation are precisely the thing that's uh, speeding the change of climate. Uh, some recent research in the south of Western Australia has shown very clearly that where the original vegetation has been retained, they're still getting reasonably decent rainfalls, but where it's been cleared, it's becoming a desert. Farmers are walking off the land. We ought to take the lesson that uh, further native vegetation land clearing in Australia is a terrible thing, and yet it's going on a pace, uh, still particularly in Queensland, and uh, it's about time to stop it and review the situation and realise that our land clearing activities are one of the major contributions of Australia, beside mining, coal and gas, major contribution to uh, the changing climate, particularly on our land mass. If we're going to be sustainable in the long run, we have to do something about that. Encouraging people to reply to the CSIRO's push for GM wheat? Well, yes, if anybody's interested, they can go on the uh, Office of Gene Technology Regulator website and look for DIR151, that's uh, Deliberate Release, DIR151 uh, application, and it's due for comment by March the 22nd, which is next week, of course, and it would be good if anybody wants to write in. And, of course, we're always open to uh, discuss it if anybody wants to give us a bell on 1300 133868. And for people who'd like to hear Dr. Michael Antonio speaking, he's the, he's the one who we started with, the head of the Gene Expression and Therapy Group and reader in 
Molecular Genetics at King's College London School of Life Sciences. That's quite a quite a title. Well, he's going to be here on Monday the 20th, which is uh, Monday of next week, at William Anglis Institute down on La Trobe Street near, near Spencer. If people want to go online, it's free, but uh, they should book a ticket. So look for Michael Antonio. Go on the Friends of the Earth website and book a free ticket there. And you can also RSVP on Facebook if they wish to do that. So it's uh, Monday the 20th at 7pm and it's down at uh, Anglis Institute, which is a very nice institution which is teaching young people the hospitality industry and uh, also, of course, about the importance of food in our lives. And the topic for his lecture? The topic will be the new genetic engineering technologies, uh, particularly CRISPR and so on, and what we need, importantly, to do here about regulating them. There'll be others on the panel with him, and I think it'll be a very good, informative evening to find out about the next stage of the GM-free campaign because, of course, it's the new vanguard, the old cut-and-paste GM techniques that we've been campaigning on now for 30 years are pretty much dead and buried but these new genetic engineering techniques that they don't want to regulate are coming down the pipeline pretty fast. There are things going to be in our food supply and in our environment pretty soon unless we do something about properly regulating them and having a public debate about what these uh, new techniques which can genetically engineer any living organism, what they're going to mean for us uh, and for our um, lives in the future. Okay, Bob. Splendid. Always good to talk. Thank you very much, uh, Jan. And that, of course, was Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and it's three minutes to five on 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Participants in the most recent APAN study tour have returned to Australia and one spoke at the Melbourne Rally recently to protest at the visit to Australia of a person who many believe should be charged with war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. And that person, of course, is the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, who our Prime Minister Turnbull welcomed enthusiastically. Sylvie Lieber was a person I was referring to, and she came into the studio recently to talk about her trip. Sylvie, these APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network study tours of refugee camps in Lebanon, short time in Jordan and more time in East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Israel, are usually, but not always, undertaken by people who have been active supporters of Palestine human rights and self-determination for many years and wish to see the sites for themselves. This description doesn't quite fit you before you embarked on your tour, but you have been an activist 
for many years. I've been a refugee activist for many years, too many years, and uh, also been uh, involved in feminist activism, particularly back in the 70s. One of the founders of the Women's Theatre Group, also one of the founders of um, our first sexual assault centre, founded by Women Against Rape. A lifetime of activism, anti-Vietnam War activism, going right back. My first protest was when I was 15. And you are Jewish? Yes, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm a Ashkenazi Jew, which means I'm of uh, that Eastern and Middle European origin, born in France, of French parents, and uh, my four grandparents were Polish-born. Had any other members of your family been to Israel? Yes, my dad's uncle, Jacob, lived in Israel. He was a left-wing socialist activist who edited a left-wing newspaper in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and his two children. But my family has been to Israel. But you never felt the need to go to Israel? I'll be blunt, I'm anti-Zionist. I don't believe in the philosophy at all. I think Jews should be able to live everywhere in the world. You know, we don't need to have a country didn't like the concept of Israel so that's why I never went even though my auntie said oh you should go to visit Israel it's very interesting from a historical point of view. You suffer any sort of discrimination within the Jewish community because you don't support the state of Israel? Don't I know that tend some... to hang around with Zionists <laughs> that's probably why I don't experience too too much discrimination but I do remember being at a party in what I call the ghetto in Caulfield. I opened my big mouth once about Israel and I was really hounded by this couple of women at the party and I was a bit surprised. I thought, ooh, I better keep my mouth shut <laughs> with certain people. But then I do have a crowd of girlfriends that I meet up with once a month, ladies who lunch, and there's a variety of perspectives and we're pretty good with each other. We're kind in our different attitudes toward towards Israel and Palestine. How did you find out about the APAN tour? A good friend of mine, Colleen Hartland, uh, went on the APAN tour. She's um, Greens MP for State Upper House for the Western Metro region. And she went on the APAN tour and talked about it when she came back. This was a few years ago. And also I've been to a couple of APAN dinners and events. And it's just more recently that I've kind of developed this sort of interest. I've always felt, honestly, that as a Jew in Melbourne, I can't influence what's happening over there in the Middle East. It just seems like an impossible task. Did you meet with any of the other participants before you went? Do they have information nights or just to let you know what to expect, where you're going and that sort of thing for a tour like that? No, we didn't get together because we came from all over Australia. So, you know, Sydney, Brisbane couple from Melbourne you know so no we didn't have the opportunity to meet but we got given really good information before we left very detailed schedule and regular emails and all that so we were very well informed it was incredibly well organized the tour organizer I reckon she's a genius this is Lisa yes she's had a very long connection mm -hmm. with Palestine about 20 years including having studied for a year there the first stop is always Beirut and the, you visit a couple of the or one of the refugee camps, and there are quite a number in Lebanon, aren't there? 
Yes, uh, we visited the one that's in Beirut. It was called Burj al-Barajne, refugee camp. What was your first impression? I think the first thing that I noticed, and, and I think most of the people in the tour group noticed, was the dire situation with uh, electrical wiring. It was just so... It looked like someone had gotten this, these giant bowls of thick black spaghetti and thrown it up into the air. It's just so dangerous. Lebanese government doesn't provide electricity to the refugee camp, and so they get all these wires from outside the camp, and it's really, really scary and dangerous. So that was the first thing I noticed. Then we went into a community space where they run a lot of activities. It was the first opportunity to meet community workers, teachers, childcare workers. Yeah, that was the first contact, basically. Yeah. And the density of population there is pretty immense. Oh, it's, it's, it's very full-on. Tiny little narrow walkways, five-storey sort of apartment blocks, no open spaces anywhere. Pretty dire situation. Quite a few overseas NGOs are supporting uh, that refugee camp. That's how it operates financially. But pretty resilient sort of people there. And that was what I found in general. They're um, amazingly resourceful. Yeah. Tell us about some of the, the families that you met, maybe the children, and what life could you see, what life is like for them? We did go into someone's living space. You know, it was just this big family sleeping in one room, basically, and not much facilities. But they're very good at maintaining their culture. You know, the music, dance, theatre, education is incredibly important. I think Palestinians see education as their kind of a bit of a saviour for them and to maintain the culture, their culture, and keep the children occupied <laughs> and off the streets and in school, yeah. Tell us about the cultural aspects that you saw. There was programs for youth, community health. There was a kindergarten and nursery. One thing that struck me is that we went into this big open area, covered open area. I immediately noticed that there were, it was disabled children of all different ages and different disabilities. And they were so friendly and welcoming and they'd made us gifts and, you know, uh, it was just amazing. <laughs> that was a very moving moment, meeting those people. I mean, even to the extreme extent that there was one teenage girl. Yeah, she was walking around with a drip and, and uh, but being quite active, you know. Didn't get her down. It was amazing. Did you have a meal with a family while you were there? A cup of coffee when mm. we went to an apartment there. We only spent a couple of hours in the refugee camp. We went to another refugee camp yes. uh, in Bethlehem as well. Okay. What was the journey from Lebanon into Palestine? Was that your next stop? Yes, we went to East Jerusalem from uh, Lebanon. Tricky sort of stuff to do. We had to uh, go via the Allenby Bridge and then there was all these border things and special permits and our tour organiser was questioned for a couple of hours at the border, you know, all this kind of stuff. And just a little taste of what uh, Palestinians have to go through, you know, often every day and constantly, yeah. What was it like in East Jerusalem? I just f felt very comfortable there. 
the hotel we stayed at was um, owned by Palestinians, but had a strong connection with y- YMCA. Even had uh, like a swimming pool and a gym and everything for local Palestinians to use um, on a you know daily basis. Uh, we were very close to Old Jerusalem, just a few minutes away, and it was easy to go for walks into Old Jerusalem. The reception from the local Palestinians was really pleasant. We had met all sorts of people, including our, all the tourism people and drivers. And We even developed a, a relationship with a local sort of cafe, restaurant, shisha bar, you know, music venue that became like a bit of a a nighttime hangout for us after our daily trips every day to new places. Tell us about Old Jerusalem, what's left of that. I found Old Jerusalem quite interesting, but I I didn't realise how it was divided up into different parts. You know, you've got your Muslim part, Jewish part, Armenian part, different Christian bits and, yeah was kind of strangely organised. I found it weird in a way, but I found it very beautiful and quite peaceful. But I must say there was one experience that I had there that was quite shocking. It was probably the most disturbing thing that I I saw. I mean, I saw many disturbing things while I was there, but I saw a young couple walking, uh, a Jewish couple. He had a skull cap on and they were pushing the pram with their baby and he had this old machine gun over his shoulder. I thought, what's a civilian, you know, doing walking around with a machine gun? And I later found out that the settlers are allowed to carry weapons anywhere they go. That was really surprising. Is it true that East Jerusalem is virtually surrounded by settlements up on the hills, or is that somewhere else? There are settlements uh, near East Jerusalem, but... It's not kind of pervasive, as as pervasive as other parts that we travelled to. And we did a lot of travelling and saw lots of different situations. Talk about some of those situations. One thing that I noticed was lots and lots of rubble, which is apparently Palestinian former Palestinian villages that have been destroyed. The story goes, if you see cactus growing out of those, any sites of rubble or in disturbed landscape that it means that there was a Palestinian village there before because cacti are very resilient and and will grow anywhere after a certain time. We were regularly stopped by soldiers and police while, while we were driving to different locations and there were checkpoints everywhere and traffic was regularly being held up and one day there were heaps of military buses and police vans zooming past with sirens and flashing lights. And I found out later that they were heading towards a Palestinian village which was being demolished illegally by the authorities and the residents were protesting and resisting. Also I noticed that the Palestinian villages had black water tanks on their roofs. None of the Israeli set- settlements had black water tanks and I found out that the black water tanks was a necessity for Palestinians because their water was being regularly cut off. Now, none of the Israeli uh, settlements ever had their water cut off, so and I, I asked myself how and why that happened. I never found out what the story was behind, behind the water being cut off. So you always knew a Palestinian village by the 
black water tanks on their roof. What about the wall, how close the wall is to Palestinian villages or does it actually go through their villages? Oh, look, the wall was another big shocking thing for me. I didn't realise how extensive. I mean, I don't think it is. It should be called the wall. It's many, many walls everywhere. Very scary looking, you know. It's very high, it's got barbed wire, it's got watchtowers and... I saw all this kind of disused weaponry and, you know, empty tear gas canisters around. The wall makes you feel like you're in a war zone because it's kind of around the wall. Everything's chaotic and wrecked and, and ugly and it's just ugly, ugly, ugly and kind of gives you a feeling of great disease when you see it. We met a Christian family who had a shop. The wall had been built across the road from them and they'd been separated from their family who were on the other side of the wall. It's really difficult for them to get permits to visit their family. I also heard of spouses being separated that way. If you know one spouse had to work over there and the other spouse, you know, the family home was over there, they had difficulty going back home. The permit system is, like, really, really hard to understand. I just don't know how they manage. It's very humiliating, I think, the way they're treated. You can just imagine the the disruption of people's lives, though. You could think of in the villages trying to take their produce to market or to somewhere else, children trying to get to school. Did you hear stories like that? I heard a few stories, but there is a a sort of a, a wall museum with a lot of written plaques placed on the wall and... There's so many different stories about how people are treated because of the wall and what issues and checkpoints and issues of women, Palestinian women being sexually harassed and abused at trying to get through the wall and so, and so forth. Yeah. You mean stories about babies being born on the at the checkpoints where they won't let no, women through to no. hospitals? No, we didn't get too many no. stories about checkpoints, no. Mm. No, but we just saw them, yeah. You went to a refugee camp in the West Bank. Whereabouts was that? Yeah, uh, that was uh, in Bethlehem. Got this amazingly significant entrance, which is like this giant keyhole with a big giant key across it. I found out subsequently that the key and the keyhole are incredibly significant symbols for Palestinians because in 1948 when they had to, uh, the refugees had to escape from Palestine because of um, uh, the United Nations ruling that it becomes a a Jewish state called Israel, they had to escape. And a lot of them took their house keys with them and still keep them, you know, saying for when when we go back home, we've got the key. When I saw that, it just sort of gave me goosebumps, you know. Did you go inside the refugee camp? Yes. How different was it to the one in Lebanon? Bigger, but a lot of similarities. Yeah, great, great deal of similarities. It didn't have the the wall everywhere, like uh, in in Lebanon they didn't have the wall, so that it gave it a different sort of a appear, general appearance. Yeah. You are listening to Sylvie Lieber, a participant in a recent APAN Australian Palestine Advocacy Network study tour. Now, talking about walls, there's a, a famous person who likes 
putting images on walls, isn't there? I know I've, I remember seeing one in Gaza, which he drew, but he's been into Bethlehem as well. Yes. Um, and we're talking about? We're talking about the famous uh, street artist Banksy, who's a bit of a hero of mine. I was very privileged to have seen some of his works. I saw about three of his pieces. One was of a young girl frisking an Israeli soldier. Uh, another one, beautiful one of the uh, piece of wearing a flak jacket and, and with a target painted on the flak jacket. And the third one of the little black silhouette of a little girl with a whole lot of holding a whole lot of balloons that are taking her over the wall. Yeah, that was quite a buzz. And I've just recently heard amazing thing that Banksy has opened a hotel at the wall in Bethlehem. It's got a pretty terrible view out the front, but that's part of the whole point, uh, showing how people have to live with the wall and the circumstances they live in. And of course, no one's seen him yet. No, I never try and understand or, or find out, you know, there are all sorts of theories and rumours and stories, you know, some people even say he's more than one person. What about the settlements? How close did you get to the settlements? Were you allowed to get near the settlement? We didn't actually go into a, a settlement. We went through an old, uh, what are they called, Moshe? They're like, a bit like the old kibbutz, because uh, we were going to a, an ancient ruin that had a bit of a story there. We didn't meet kind of your everyday Israeli people. We, we met Israeli activists. Uh, we met people from the the Israeli anti-demolition movement and, and they were really good in explaining things and taking us places and they took us to the Jordan Valley and met um, where we were able to meet the Bedouin activists and so forth. But no, uh, we didn't visit any kibbutz or settlements or anything like that. Yeah. Tell us about the Bedouins. The Bedouins are um, traditionally nomadic people that have lived in Palestine for centuries and, and they're also being treated very badly by the Israeli government, uh, being moved off their lands and shoved left, right and centre and they live a very simple life. They have herds of goats, they've got camels, they're very close to nature in some ways, they live a really beautiful lifestyle of simplicity and beauty and, and connection with, with the land, but they also are being treated very badly and being moved off their traditional lands. But yeah. they're fighting back. The problem with the people who are being treated so badly in this situation, the, the Palestinians, the Arab Israelis, the Bedouins, is that they're not very well organised and they're different political groups are not very unified that's holding them back from achieving things and progressing things in a more positive way but i'd say also holding people back is the presence of the the military and the police everywhere oh of course the way they sort of keep everyone separate you know i know that a lot of the disorganization is because of you know the walls and the partitions and the A, B and C different areas. It's very, very confusing. I can't even begin to try and explain it and analyse it and understand it. 
there are other people who would know a lot more about that. But it's all, yeah, part of the plan to keep any opposition as divided and as disorganised as possible. Did you meet with any Christian Arabic families? Yes, yes. We we met with um, one Christian Arabic family who had a shop in Bethlehem and they had also had a bit of a B&B and they still had their shop but they were unable to keep up with B&B because the military would turn up to their home at like two in the morning during the building of the wall uh, and they were like snipers and, you know, they would use the upstairs from their home for doing sniping. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the word is. Uh, so they weren't able to keep up their business. But they're another very resilient family. You know, they've kept their shop, they keep going, they keep explaining. They've had the, they've been separated from members of their family because of the wall. Very tough people, really, really lovely family. Yeah. How many Israelis did you speak with? Not that many. Uh, we mostly spoke with Palestinian activists and organisers and we did also uh, speak to some Australian diplomatic uh, workers, but that was in Lebanon. They do work with the Palestinians to some degree. Interesting, the Palestinian Authority, I think, and particularly with aid programs. What about Israelis working with the peace movement? Did you find any of those? It was mostly the yeah the anti demolition activists mm. that we we had a bit to do with uh, Jerry Halper and there was one young fellow he was um, had been conscripted into the Israeli army and did his two full years, but after that he decided he was against military treatment of Palestinians and so once they've done their two years army service they also get called every now and then to do like reserve army for a few months and he started refusing to do reserve army duties and he would be regularly jailed for a few weeks at a time because he refused so it was really interesting meeting a young former soldier who was now what they call a refusenik I think they're called. Saw about the culture did you they take you to Concerts or in people's homes, um, apart from Banksy, music. Yeah. yeah, we went to a fabulous concert inside the refugee camp. There's an organisation called Awurad, I think, that organise a lot of cultural events. And I was thrilled to be able to attend one of these fabulous concerts and it was mostly young people dressed in traditional costume doing dance and theatre and singing and it was just fantastic. Uh, We saw a bunch of kids in the refugee camp having music lessons. Amazing how they maintain all their culture. It's really important to them and I think that's one of the reasons why they're resilient and able to not sink into total despair is because they maintain their culture. And the food, of course. Tell you know. us about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the first thing that I went crazy about was a sweet called Kalfair, I think it is. Oh, it was just wonderful. I've got to find something in Melbourne, somewhere in Melbourne that makes this. The hospitality in terms of food and drink, it was always out there. Everywhere we went, we felt terrifically welcome. If I ever spoke to someone for any length of time, I would inevitably mention that I was Jewish never experienced a hint of any 
anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish feeling towards me or to any other Jewish people. That was a really powerful experience for me, to recognise and acknowledge that in the Palestinians. No hesitation in telling you their stories? No. Always very open. You know, people told me about their being arrested, put in jail, times in jail. They didn't hesitate. No chance to go to Gaza? We couldn't get a permit. There was another organisation who were trying on our behalf to get our permits and surprise, surprise, we couldn't get into Gaza. My assumption, I might might be wrong, is that things are so bad there they don't want any sympathetic to the Palestinian cause people going in there and reporting back outside what they saw. What do you do in Jordan for the final part of your trip? Oh, that was more like rest and recreation. (laughs) We went to the Dead Sea and had a float and and then went to Petra and saw this amazing, beautiful, ancient ruins. It was just spectacular. I should ask you finally the impressions and the experiences that you bring back with you. It took me a while to recover from the trip, first because of how powerful and disturbing it was, but it was also extremely interesting. We asked one Palestinian woman activist, does she hold any hope out for the future? And she said, yes, I do have hope, but it's frozen at the moment. And when I came back to Australia, strange things happened. Netanyahu was coming. So I saw something interesting happening in the more Zionist Jewish community, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, the Jewish umbrella organisation for Australia, was a bit critical of Netanyahu's government and how they're building illegal settlements. And it was reported in a very pro-Zionist Jewish newspaper. That was very unusual. So that gave me a little bit of a glimmer of hope that maybe something is shifting, you know, here in, in the Zionist community in Australia. And how has that two weeks changed you? I'm very glad that I did the trip. I thought it was an important thing to do and I've felt since I've come back the need to let people know what's going on there and what I saw and how I felt about the place. came back with a view that the only way things would work in Palestine and Israel is binational democracy and multiculturalism. I don't think there should be a Israeli Jewish state. It's got to be across the board for any ethnicity. It also made me feel strongly affirmed that I'm against nationalism. I think nationalism is always a precursor to war and conflict. This conflict has been going on for far too long. The world has to help work towards a peaceful solution and a democratic state that is multicultural, multinational. Just finally, Sylvie? Oh, look, I'd just like to recommend to people who have ever considered going to Middle East, having a look for themselves at what's happening in Israel and Palestine and thereabouts and, and the refugee camps around the whole Middle East area, that the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network, a very reputable and good organisation, organises wonderful tours and they do that a couple of times a year. They've got a website that you can check out, lots of information available for anyone who's interested. They also have other functions and they're based in a few different cities around Australia too. And that was Sylvie Lieber talking about her recent participation in the APAN study tour Australians Palestine for 
Australian Palestinians Advocacy Network, get it right. And she's been back a little while now and um, talking about what it meant to her to go there. This is 3CR. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. There are many ways for activists around the world to campaign for peace, but one is unique to Japan, the country devastated by nuclear war in 1945, and it's the peace boat. In Australia, to present a public lecture at Melbourne University on the 6th anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster was Akira Kawasaki, an executive member of the Tokyo-based NGO The Peace Boat. He is also on this International Steering Committee of ICANN, amongst other peace activities. I asked Akira first when the organisation Peace Boat was established and what was that first Peace Boat? So Peace Boat was created in 1983, uh, more than 30 years ago, and students in Tokyo, Japan, founded that organization. And that initiative was in response to a debate, or a political debate, over the history of World War II. In a history textbook in Japan, there was an issue uh, how Japan admits the atrocities that it committed during World War II. The Japanese government has been heavily criticized by other Asian nations, including China and Korea, for being um, not fully admitting uh, those issues. And in among that history dispute, uh, students in Japan thought it is very important to have a face-to-face dialogue with uh, neighboring citizens. And in the slogan of learning from the past, building a peace in future, this initiative uh, was launched. Basically, they, uh, they chartered a passenger ship, and uh, with that ship, uh, hundreds of students uh, went around the Asia-Pacific region, and that was the origin of Peace Boat. And then it grew up, and now uh, it has a very big, large passenger ship uh, with more than 1,000 people get on at once and sailing around the world uh, for global voyages for peace education. Can you talk about some of the places the boat has been? And I suppose you can't call it a boat anymore. It's a ship, isn't it? Because it's big. Yeah, it's, it's big. So it's called a, a, a boat in name, but in, actually it, is, it has uh, 35,000 tons and uh, quite big one. And anybody can uh, join the ship uh, with a passenger fee of about $10,000 uh, for the 100 days. Uh, the global voyage, and it is run on a very, how to say, non, non-profit basis. So I think it's, uh, uh, it is running uh, on a very reasonable price compared with commercial-based cruise ships. And uh, with this participant's income, uh, this organization is run 
on a very much sustainable basis or a self-sustainable basis. And who are the crew and, and who provides all the infrastructure that need to keep a boat, a ship like uh, that, on the sea well, for? We charter the ship from a shipping company. Uh, the ship company uh, based in the U.S. Uh, provides crew members. And uh, Peace Boat staff members from Japan are taking care of the programs to be held on the boat as well as in ports of visit. Talk about some of the places that the, the boat's been over those 30 years and the issues that you've covered. Okay. We've dealt with many issues related peace and environment and also human rights. For example, when we visit China, uh, we had a, a history finding missions in relation to uh, Nanjing massacre. Or when we visit Vietnam, uh, we meet victims of uh, Agent Orange that was used during the Vietnam War. Those people affected are having a, some sort of rehabilitation program and environmental, environmental remediation and so on. And also in partnership with the United Nations, uh, we are promoting the concept of sustainable development goals. It is called as SDGs. That was uh, adopted in, 19, uh, in 2015 at the UN headquarters as a goal for the poverty reductions, addressing climate change, and uh, creating peaceful and inclusive society, that kind of thing. And so uh, there's a big, big logo uh, on the body of Peace Boat of, uh, represented at this uh, 17 goals of SDGs. And uh, in partnership with the UN, we are having various uh, awareness raising programs in many parts of the world. Have you been to every continent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are sailing literally uh, around the globe. In a global voyage, we visit, in average, about 25 countries. So I myself also participated many times. So uh, yeah, we are quite, uh, uh, quite travellers. What happens on the boat itself, apart from when you get off and you have meetings with people? What's the education process on the boat? Yeah, yeah. we have uh, seminar rooms and lecture rooms and uh, theatres and all those educational you know, facilities on the boat. We have various uh, lectures and discussion sessions and with a global university program, as it is called, we have... Uh, many students, not only from Japan, but also many other um, students, uh, especially from Asia-Pacific region, studying on various issues. For example, uh, when the ship uh, visits to a certain country, in the leg beforehand, uh, we study about the history and the political and social issues of that country of visit uh, in the head, uh, taking three, four days. And we visit that country and have programs in land and then afterwards, when uh, coming back to the ship, we have sort of reflection session uh, and digest what they have learned uh, in the visit in the land. Have you been to the Middle East at all because of all the, the wars and disasters that's been happening there since 2002? Yes, yes, of course. And uh, we have a very long relationship in uh, many society-based organisations in the Middle East. Egypt and Jordan are two countries that we frequently visit and in Jordan uh, we have programs of uh, 
homestaying and visit to Palestinian uh, refugee camp. And by having these programs, our participants deepen their understanding about the issue, how, what is happening in the, in the refugees in the, re in the region. Uh, and they visit those places with some sort of humanitarian aid stuff. You mentioned just before about the victims of Agent Orange in Vietnam. Has the ship been anywhere near Fukushima? Uh, yes. We uh, actually docked uh, a port uh, near Fukushima, not in Fukushima, but near Fukushima, uh, some years after the disaster of uh, uh, March 11, 2011, as a part of some sort of development program or in, uh, that is encouraging the people affected re, uh, in the area to recover. Yeah. What is the Peace Boat Peace Prize and who's, I, who's been awarded that? Actually, uh, in the early stage of Peace Boat, we have given peace awards to such prominent people like Desmond Tutu and so on. It has been an initiative uh, that peace group have celebrated those peacemakers and mediators around the world. And what is your Hibakshu project? Yeah, Hibaksha project is, uh, you know, Hibaksha is a Japanese word uh, meaning uh, survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Well, literally, it means that the nuclear uh, victims. Uh, we regularly uh, invite uh, those Hibaksha to come on board a peace boat, and we organize uh, testimony sessions in the cities of, of our visit. And we already had more than 170 Hibaksha to travel around the world. In I think uh, over thousands of people had a chance to talk to directly uh, with those uh, survivors. And we are doing this uh, for the sake of raising awareness on, on the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons, uh, and thus uh, helping promote momentum for nuclear weapons abolition. What's the project for 2017? 2017, uh, this year, you mean? Yes, what, what's the, what is yeah. the ship going to do this year? Yes, uh, this year is very important year for uh, nuclear weapons abolition because at the UN, a negotiation for uh, international treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, categorically ban nuclear weapons, uh, is uh, soon starting. Uh, actually, that will start in late this March. Uh, with this uh, uh, development in mind, uh, Peace Boat again have uh, many Hibakusha to come on board and organize testimony sessions and encourage groups uh, and local groups and citizens in many countries to work uh, and encourage their own governments to participate and positively contribute in the negotiation so that the strong nuclear prohibition treaty be concluded within this year. This is our uh, major uh, high priority for this year. I dare say that since you've been here in Australia, you've found out that our government is not going to participate. Yeah, that's, that's problematic. But uh, it is a shame also our own government, Japan, is still you know, hesitant uh, and haven't not openly committed to participate. And these uh, reluctance uh, by Australia, Japan, and others, some others, are coming from the consideration that the US nuclear weapons 
are uh, providing some sort of security to those nations and the so-called nuclear umbrella concept. However, uh, when you hear directly to the voices of those survivors who experienced the literary hell in the world uh, immediately after the bombing, you will understand this, uh, this weapons will never provide any sort of uh, security to people. It's a kind of illusion that nuclear weapons are the source of peace. So uh, I think it's very important that Australian and Japanese citizens work uh, together to make visible this uh, uh, unacceptable inhuman nature of such weapons and uh, encourage the governments to do the right thing at the UN. Is there much debate in Japan about the nuclear umbrella? Yes, there's a big debate. And basically Japan has kind of a self-contradiction or double standards, so to say. On one hand, there's a very strong anti-nuclear weapons sentiment very widespread and deep-rooted, and especially the mayors and the leaders of Hiroshima and Nagasaki cities have been uh, very vocally uh, calling for nuclear-free initiatives uh, by Japan and in the world. This is one phase. But the other phase is that, you know, uh, the Tokyo government is really see the U.S.-Japan relation as a central, you know, uh, core of any foreign policies or security policies. And uh, uh, from this perspective, Japan needs to follow anything to the U.S. for foreign security policies. That's another very o o orthodox way of thinking in the policymakers. So this nuclear weapons prohibition uh, provides a huge dilemma and to make sharp the existence of double standard. So there's a big debate uh, domestically. Is there also a dilemma or a debate in Japan about the movements in the South China Sea from China and the threats from the West? Yeah, yes. This territorial dispute between China and Japan has been an issue for, for recent years. And uh, it is true that uh, military tension between China and Japan and also the North Korea and Japan coming very, very serious. So here again, there is a dilemma because Japan has a peace constitution. Uh, uh, Article 9 of this constitution says that, that Japan will never use force or threat of use of, of force uh, in settling uh, international disputes. Uh, according to this principle, you know, the diplomatic and non-military way for solving is required uh, for these issues. And I think generally such a pacifist way is something that gaining support uh, always uh, from the public. But at the same time, uh, the same issue is also provoking those who want to get rid of this uh, peace constitution and a uh, uh, more militarized response to be prepared. And such a, a militarist approach is also coming up in view of this uh, territorial dispute. Here again, how to do with this peace principle for Japanese diplomacy is uh, becoming one major debate. Other parts of your work, apart from the peace boat, are with ICANN, and that's a group that started here in Australia in 2009. What's your role with ICANN? Yes, I'm serving as an international steering group member uh, of ICANN. 
So this uh, coalition of NGOs already uh, grew up uh, with more than 400 partners from 100 countries. As you rightly said, it was founded in Melbourne for the first time about 10 years ago. And so uh, we are having regular you know, meetings and uh, strategizing how to promote and advance uh, nuclear disarmament discourses around civil society and, and thus uh, pressuring governments to do the right thing uh, in the upcoming UN negotiation on the Nuclear Prohibition Treaty. You are listening to Akira Kawasaki from the Peace Boat Organisation who was in Melbourne last week to present the public lecture titled The End of Nuclear Dependence? Question mark, six years since Fukushima. You're also part of the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament, which I've read is a, a joint Japan-Australian government initiative. When you think of, of the, the role of both the Japanese and the Australian government n- not to participate in conferences on disarmament, how does this group stay in power or stay where it is if they don't agree with disarmament? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really tricky. So um, both Australian and Japanese governments have been claiming that uh, they are doing some sort of realistic way of step-by-step type of disarmament approaches. I admit and acknowledge that, that there is certain value of the, these governments have been doing, but they are not so far courageous enough to go for a complete prohibition and categorical ban on nuclear weapons. So this, you know, vague attitude uh, in, the, in the name of interim measures or realistic approach is just slowing down and preventing uh, what can be achieved uh, from uh, being realized. So I, I really hope that those governments can do what they have been calling for in name, which is uh, realising uh, a nuclear weapon-free world. Today is the sixth anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, yep. the, both the tsunami and we're, we're talking mainly today about the, the nuclear disaster. Where were you on that day and, and can you remember how you felt when you first heard about it? Yeah, actually, I was on the peace boat and away from Japan. So uh, my experience as a Japanese was kind of, you know, unique in that. But uh, my family, you know, I, I got suddenly uh, internet news about this uh, tsunami and also nuclear disaster. And I tried to uh, call my family uh, who are living uh, in Tokyo. Uh, but uh, there was no telephone line available for about uh, nearly 24 hours. So I could only had to, you know, uh, look at these uh, TV uh, reports uh, showing the explosion uh, at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants taking place. And uh, so uh, from uh, be- being outside of Japan was really good to, how to say, objectively see the situation and uh, collect information regarding the radiation issue. And I uh, continuously emailed to my family about the situation and I later on when I came back in Japan uh, some weeks uh, later I learned that there had been uh, much uh, confusion regarding information about uh, what is happening in, in the power plant 
and the issues related to radiation. So in a sense, the confusion in information was uh, somehow the, the biggest challenge in the aftermath of the uh, uh, disaster. Do you believe it was deliberate confusion? Don't think so uh, fully. I mean, in the later stage, it was officially uh, you know, confirmed by some documentations that on the Japanese government side, they tried to hide certain information regarding the scientific estimate uh, where uh, this first radioactive material may be going in the name of preventing panic among the public. That sort of calculation of judgment were there. But on top of that, there have been very vulnerable system, you know, of, of all related to media and information infrastructure. So in case of such big disaster, things can be very much easily um, be messed. And Japan has been taught of uh, very much uh, discipline and uh, high technology, you know, country. But in the wake of uh, this trouble and big disaster, things can be easily uh, uh, overturned and very much messy. What were you able to do when you returned home? After returning home, that at that time, the priority thing for the people is just to save energy because, you know, uh, if you have an experience to come to Japan uh, and you may be surprised at the very bright signs and those electricity and so on in many big cities. But uh, soon after the disaster, saving energy and uh, do not waste energy and, and those uh, things came very mainstream, uh, I think, which is the right thing. Uh, and so uh, I think in the coming some months uh, after the disaster, people in Tokyo were really uh, working hard on uh, energy saving. Was this because most of the nuclear power plants were closed down or was it just the ones in Fukushima? The Fukushima ones, you know, shut down. And so since then, the question of nuclear power plants have just started. One by one, all those nuclear power plants got shut down. Japan has about 50 nuclear reactors. Not immediately after the disaster, but soon after the disaster, one by one, it came to shut down. At, at the end, in May 2012, which is almost one, just one year later, Japan had zero uh, nuclear power plants operation. And people it just uh, could just foresee that could happen at the point of immediately after the disaster. So they really worked hard for the energy saving. And because before Fukushima accident, 30% uh, of electricity uh, generation uh, was from uh, nuclear. People uh, tried to survive uh, in this crisis. Was it hoped at that time by anti-nuclear and peace activists that those nuclear power plants would stay shut and that renewable energy would be improved? Yeah, so uh, that year, 2012, uh, which is the next year from the disaster, we had a very big highlight and mobilization according for nuclear zero. At that time, the Democratic Party of Japan, which was then ruling the government, decided and provided the official uh, cabinet decision to aim for a nuclear phase out by the year uh, 2039, actually. And they said that uh, within 2030s, 
uh, Japan will have zero nuclear power plants operation. And it was a bit of a modest plan, but still, uh, it was a huge and a fundamental change of the Japanese policy because ever since 1960s, promotion of nuclear energy was one of the major plans, energy and nuclear policy. But uh, in, in the light of very strong public opinion, the government had to change it. The problem is that uh, later on, in some years, in 2014, the new government uh, led by LDP, a conservative government, they changed again. And now uh, it is said that the nuclear power uh, will come back as one of the key sources of energy for Japan. Is it correct to say that the nuclear lobby got rid of that government because they were trying to get rid of nuclear power? Partly, yes, because uh, the then Prime Minister from the Democratic Party, uh, Mr. Khan, was so vocal against nuclear power. So there's a kind of a strong pressure from industrial community to uh, remove him, and he was really kicked out, uh, kicked out. Then the new government, now led by Mr. Abe, is uh, very much uh, supported by those industry, including nu nuclear industry. What is the situation now? Are all those power plants back in operation? Are there renewals, renewables being brought into the system in Japan now? Only three reactors are in operation in Japan. So uh, the government, ever since uh, Mr. Abe took power, is talking about that uh, recovery of nuclear energy. But in reality, it, the process it has been very slow. This is mainly because the resistance and the opposition in local communities. To enable a restart of nuclear power plants, the local consent is a must according to Japanese legal and political system. The mayors and governors in, in the regions do not provide okay uh, in an easy manner. So it is slowing down the process. Today, you know, it's just uh, six years since the disaster. And after, you know, six years, we are still surviving with very small number of, nearly zero of uh, nuclear power plants. With significant energy saving and some increase of fossil fuel, uh, which, is in, uh, which is very unfortunate for the sake of global warming issue, but significant increase of renewable. Since uh, 2011, renewable energy options have been really increased and still it's, um, it's less than 20% of the total power generation, but uh, increase is very much obvious and nuclear went down from 30% to nowadays 0.9%. And surely the cost to the people in that area where the nuclear disaster was, the cost to the people, the cost to the environment, and the unending cost of fixing up the mess must be weighing on people's minds that there could be another one. Yes, this another very serious issue because a very wide range of the region was heavily contaminated with radiation but it is so-called as a, a low dose radiation which cannot cause kind of immediate health effect because of this region the government and the nuclear industry is trying to you know uh, downplay the impact uh, it's safe it's not so dangerous and so it wouldn't cause immediate impact so you can come back to the uh, 
the areas. The decontamination process of the uh, offsite of the plants, though those residential area has been uh, in place, but still the government standard for uh, lifting the evacuation order and promoting the return of people is set for 20 millisieverts per year, which is 20 times higher than normal setting. And uh, this 20 millisieverts per year is uh, just similar to the professional workers in the nuclear field. So in the Fukushima area, that becomes the standard for people to leave, which is very much unacceptable. But uh, nowadays, the government is uh, really working hard of lifting the evacuation order and promoting a return. And, and this is because, you know, now Tokyo Olympics Games is set for 2020. So the government is trying to declare the complete normalization before this 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and everything is going for, for that direction. But still, there's no proper control of the broken nuclear reactors of Fukushima Daiichi plant. It is said that 20 trillion dollars, which is, I think, 230 billion Australian dollars, be expected as a total cost for wrapping up this Fukushima nuclear disaster, including contamination, decommissioning, and compensation to the residents. And who's going to pay that? Actually, taxpayers. Yeah. You know, this TEPCO, uh, the uh, Tokyo Electricity, uh, the operator of the nuclear power plant, is uh, primarily responsible for the compensation and so on, but uh, obviously they can't. So uh, the government decided the government will help TEPCO to do so, which means the taxpayers have to uh, bear the burden. And now, nowadays, uh, the, the government and the industry is planning to some portion of the compensation cost will be charged on the households via monthly electricity fees. With all these problems, which is, are all serious, but I really have to emphasize that the de facto denuclearization process is going on in Japan. The Japan had 50 reactors, but now only three operating, and very strong public opinion. In any public survey, about well, more than 70% of population is supporting uh, nuclear phase out, so which is a very definite uh, trend. And in parallel to it, such countries like Taiwan or Vietnam have already recently decided to, uh, uh, to go away with the nuclear power plants project. So I think uh, in this aftermath of Fukushima, uh, the future of nuclear power industry in general is uh, getting uh, more and more unclear. Uh, emphasizing this particularly because in this country, Australia, the debate over uranium mining is going, you know, always going uh, back and forth. So uh, nuclear industry will be fading away, I think. So uh, I hope that uh, people in Australia can have a good decision regarding the future of the uranium industry of your country. Don't we all? That was Akira Kawasaki, who's a Japanese peace activist, speaking about issues nuclear in Japan and also around the region. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Done by Laura coming up. Bye for now.